Paul, the episode has finally arrived. Our first guest on The Modern White Man, the podcast where we discuss how to be a modern white man who is anti-racist, anti-sexist, and understands his role in creating equity. Paul, I'm so pumped. After doing quite a bit of individual identity work, which will be ongoing, to be clear, we will continue that forever, I think, we are beginning to move into collective action, which, if you'll recall, is where we begin to be thoughtful about building relationships and alliances with others who are working towards equity. So we want to enter into conversations with black, indigenous, and people of color, and other whites, both white men and whites with different identities, to collectively discuss how they are addressing inequities on personal, institutional, and cultural levels, and also to hear from them about how they view white men in equity movements as being leaders at organizations where they believe white men can have a real impact, and I'm sure many other things that will come up about white men. And we had such a stellar guest to kick us off. It was such an excellent conversation. Yeah, it really was. And, you know, you and I can agree we could have gone for hours. Hours. I mean, honestly. I mean. Hours. Yeah. It was just... Maybe our listeners would have tolerated that for the first time because it's not just you and me going back and forth. I think you got a point there. You know, yeah. that's the issue. Oh, okay. <laughs> we should have just had it go for hours. <laughs> Yeah, it was really great. And honestly, I personally felt just re-energized by the conversation. I think, you know, back to what you just said, just that importance of connecting with other white folks who are doing this work and just just being inspired by what they do, learning from what they're doing, and just feeling a part of a community. I think that, that even just that, okay, there are other people doing this, and I feel that sense of community is really motivating, I think. Yeah. So I really came, came away from it feeling really energized and ready to, to jump back into it. Yeah, and excited with this new phase. You know, it's like we have that benchmark. And just and as I told Becky at the end of our interview with her, she set the bar high, right? She was so fantastic. Yeah, she was. Yeah, it and it's also just, you know, great to, you know, when we're seeing so much in the news of white people just doing such hor- such horrible things. Again, whiteness doesn't need to be this negative thing, you know, or we don't have to feel like our identity is bad, right? Yeah. With a capital B, you know, we can work towards having this positive identity, feeling like we can do something meaningful, that we can play a role, mm-hmm. right? And that's the, the goal of the podcast, of course. So, yeah, so we were joined by uh, Becky Yvonne. She's the assistant professor of management at Metro State University right here in Minnesota. Her research and experience is focused on enhancing an organization's diversity and inclusion programs. She's especially interested in breaking concrete and glass ceilings. I've never heard concrete ceilings before. Loved. I hadn't either. And when I saw that she sent that over, I was like, yes. That takes a jackhammer to break concrete ceilings. You just totally described the image in my head it was a jackhammer (laughs) and it was a bunch of people just tearing it down i love that yeah i love that so breaking concrete and glass ceilings so women and people of color can flourish in leadership positions i mean how how, couldn't get any more perfect as far as right up right up her alley so couldn't couldn't be more perfect well, we, what we primarily discussed with her is a research report that she has coming out called Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion in the Workplace, Examining the Role of White Privilege in Advancing Organizational Equity. The research takes a critical look at dominant culture or whiteness to better understand the work ahead of us on DEI teams and in organizations. Again, couldn't be more perfect. I mean, just right up our alley. 
And we could sit here and talk about how fantastic Becky and her work is and how fantastic the conversation was, but why don't we just hop into that conversation so y'all can hear for yourself. Let's get right on into Becky Vaughn. We are thrilled to be joined by Becky Yvonne to discuss her recent report, even before it's fully published. So really, this is a special sneak peek called Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion in the Workplace, Examining the Role of White Privilege in Advancing Organizational Equity. Becky, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. We are so thrilled to have you. And you you have the distinct... I don't want to call it an honor per se, but this distinct title that you will always have as being the very first guest on The Modern White Man. So we are extra excited and, and thankful for you for joining us. Oh, well, thank you for having me. I'll try not to fangirl too much. <laughs> yes, you're, right. you're so kind. So we're really, really excited to talk about the research. And today it's really what the research, it takes a critical look at the dominant culture or whiteness to better understand the work ahead of us on DEI. So that's diversity, equity, inclusion, teams, and in organizations. So really, this is right up our alley of what we're trying to do here at The Modern White Man, you know, examining how one's racial identity factors into the success of DEI initiatives of an organization. And you know, what jumped out to me right away from the report is that it explores the question, is a person who identifies as white in paid DEI roles effective in organizations? And if so, what traits or qualities do they bring to the workplace that may make them especially successful? And conversely, there is a related concern whether whites in paid DEI roles are more willing, consciously or unconsciously, to support or uphold the status quo, which, of course, historically has largely excluded people of color and other marginalized communities. So it's just extremely interesting stuff. We're really excited to dig into this with you. And again, it's just right perfect up our alley. So to start, Becky, could you share more about your journey and uh, that led you to get into this work and how you began this specific report and, and who you interviewed and all that? Yeah, thanks so much. Um, yeah, I always think I, I, you know, I try to reflect on like, when was that moment in my life when I just had this pull towards anti-oppression work or fighting for justice or whatever word we're using to describe the work. And I, I, I think I was always a really empathetic kid with a super strong pull towards fairness. You know, I, I was that one that I was like, everybody feels this way. Like you could get me to rally up and like organize on the playground. And I wasn't quite sure like where that was going to go. I just knew like what was, I feel like I had this like innate sense of what was fair and what wasn't. And then, you know, and then like kind of grew up and I'll say that I really think I engaged more critically in this work in the last 10 years. Uh, I'll also acknowledge that it's no coincidence that that was also when I became a parent. I think that there was some, something that happened on two levels, I really had to examine how I was raised to understand, am I going to use these same parenting techniques with my child? Um, and also, uh, just in full transparency, uh, both of my boys, one is 10, one is seven, they joined our family at birth and they I identify as African-American. And even though I considered myself on the journey of social justice, 
when that was layered in with parenthood and motherhood, it amped it up to a whole new level <laughs> um, because it became so much more personal than I can ever imagine. And so I was working at Target at the time. Um, I was on a learning and development team and I always thought like, oh, yeah, I'll get my doctorate. Yeah, maybe. And then I was like, why not? Let's just go do it. And so I, um, I, I have a business degree and it, but it was like, what do I want to do with business? And I've always been really interested in this idea of the workplace as the setting. What does social justice look like in an organized setting, especially for profit organizations where there can be some really conflicting values for individuals? And so uh, for my dissertation research, I, I talked with um, lesbians who were vice presidents or above in Fortune 500 companies about their career progression uh, to getting to, to that level. So they're not only do they identify as women, but also um, sexual orientation is, is, you know, is gay, they're lesbian. And it opened it just like something happened in my brain. And I realized this is the type of research I want to do. I felt like I love, well, one, I love talking to people. I think people are really cool. <laughs> I think they have really amazing stories. And I also think that gathering these stories and is a piece of community building. And so it is a way, even in the most recent research that we'll be talking about um, today, there really was this element of community building. Every person I talked to said, hey, can you give me the names of everybody else you interviewed? Because I'd really like to get together with them. Because I think there's this connection. And, and quite honestly, I think there's an element of loneliness in this work. And, and I'm going to say the work as shorthand, because for some of us, that's DEI, anti-racism, anti-oppression, social justice, whatever language we're using, I'm just shorthanding it as the work. And so I knew that that needed to be a core element of, of the research. And so there were four of us who came together, uh, myself, Stephanie Sisko at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. Crystal Sarek fashioned at Metropolitan State University and Stacy Robbins at St. Mary's of California. And we really started talking around, and, and this was right after the murder of George Floyd. What is it that we can do as academics? Our work takes so long, but like really like this is the space we're in. This is our background. This is our passion. What does it look like? And for me, it was really important to turn that critical eye on dominant culture. I think many times when corporations are, are starting out their employee resource groups or starting down the path of diversity, equity, and inclusion, there's a tendency to, to have trainings on things like imposter syndrome, communicating differently, uh, being more assertive, which is great, but they're all kind of like based on the idea that there's something wrong with me and not with the culture and how I'm moving up or how I'm presenting in the organization. And so for, for our research group, it was really important to begin to look at the culture. And we're doing that by looking at the individuals who have a part in creating that diverse, equitable, and inclusive culture. And so there are folks all, all over the United States. They're all in paid roles that support 
Um, a majority of them are on teams with the title of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, and then a handful of them are in support roles like communication or business analysts or run programs within the organizations that help support diversity, equity, and inclusion in some way. Uh, and then we just ask their stories like, tell us about your job, tell us about your career, tell us about what's working, what isn't, what'd you learn? And, and so that's, that's what brought us here today. That is fantastic. Thank you for sharing. I, I, I love how it's such a powerful example of how example of how you can bring passion and turn that into action, right? And you've always had that passion and then how it became more personable and what you can do. That's a lot about what we talk about right here with this. It's like, we want to do this internal work and then we want to turn that into action. So that that's such a fantastic story. And of course, the overlap of focusing on the dominant culture, which is, you know, Paul and I had an episode on the, the theme of dominant culture, right? And how that really encompasses so much in the workplace and looking at the culture. And, and what I found interesting in the research is to address their own biases, the participants in your research revealed the various ways that they leveraged their white identity to address white fragility and show up to support black, indigenous, people of color, BIPOC colleagues in the workplace. And this resulted after your conversations in four dominant themes of personal development that your research identified. There was vulnerability and resiliency in self and community exploration. The second was storytelling. The third was shared frameworks. And the fourth was self-exploration. And so I was wondering if you could give, give an overview of those four, those four and, and why participants noted them as important. Yeah, yeah, thanks. And I think that the research team, we were really interested in, in understanding how does somebody learn how to do this work, like in, in a real way. So if you're in a paid position, like, what type of training did you get? What life experiences brought you there? How are you continuing to learn and grow? Are you continuing to learn and grow? And we learned that of, of the people that we talked to, most did not intend to be in diversity, equity, and inclusion. They found themselves there because of a passion, because they had a skill set that a particular job was looking for, company areas emerged and all of a sudden diversity, equity, inclusion is part of your job. And so no one had formal training on diversity, equity, and inclusion. So then how did you learn how to do this? Right. And, and so these were the four areas in which all of the participants talked to some extent. In short, all four of these areas, what they have in common is they're all about how do I learn individually? So what does my own like self-exploration look like? Is that reading books? Is that going to movies? Is that listening to podcasts? Like what, what are those things or what are those tools or those ways that I can uncover those things about myself and truly that deep, deep self-discovery? So it's not always about race. It could be about um something that happened in my childhood that I'm hanging on to and I have to learn to process through that yeah. because it's coming out in these really tough conversations. And then I, th and so I think that's where that gets to the shared frameworks. Um, when we started to, to question like, what books were you reading? What 
like what are how, what are you talking to people in your organization, your colleagues about? And and so you know there were um, some books that you know rose to the top. So Kendi, How to Be an Anti Racist, was mentioned on almost every single interview. With trepidation, uh, white fragility was mentioned. <laughs> it's a very interesting. It's it's like well, I learned something from it, but then I also learned something about the book and the author. So then I had to like process that, right? So I mean, there's like multiple layers to that. And then I think at some point, everybody that we talked to was really propelled to tell their story somehow. So how do I tell my friends, my family, my kids, the people I work with, whatever this looks like, why this work matters. Mm. And storytelling was a real piece of like my own stories, the stories I hear from others, uh, uh, really a way that folks engaged and build that community. Hmm. And the last one on vulnerability and resiliency, every single person talked about a time when they did something that was really hard and they made a really big mistake in their mind and maybe publicly and how they processed through that. So how do you, how are you in that space? You show up and it's not done in a way that's helpful or there's feedback that comes from people that you care about that it wasn't done well. And how do you work through that resiliency and vulnerability, uh, accepting that feedback, processing that feedback, and then getting up and doing it again yeah. differently. Um, so th- that's really what surfaced a lot when we were talking with folks about how they learn to perform, to um, be successful in the DEI role. It's such an inevitable part of this work, isn't it? That mistakes will be made and you will have some really difficult areas, but that's how you grow, right? Absolutely. And I would say everybody, if not everybody, when we ask them the question, um, if, if you could go back to you the first time you were in a DEI role, what what would you have liked to have had sooner? And almost everybody said, I would have liked to have made mistakes and failed much sooner. Um, Because those were the real pivotal learning moments for people on how to do this work in such a nuanced way. And they also learned about themselves. Like, how am I showing up? How am what does this look like for me? And so a lot of people were like, that's, I wish that I was in a place where I could just have made a, you know, five or six big mistakes, had the feedback learned, and then I would have just been ready to go. Um, so it is interesting to think about that failures as a, as a piece of learning uh, for, for all of these individuals. Very interesting. Yeah. One, one thing I noticed in those four, which is really interesting, I think, something we talk a lot about is this self, like there's a lot of self there. What I've been sort of taught over the years, you know, implicitly or through voices that I follow, sort of white people need to stop centering themselves, right? And so when I see the word self, it feels centering. So I, you know, I personally am working through that, working through the nuance and discerning when am I centering myself versus what you're talking about, which is doing the necessary deep self individual work that needs to get done in order for me to, in order for me to do the work, right? Um, especially with something like uh, working through white fragility, right? That that takes quite a bit of self-work in order to prepare yourself to practice, to get into the mindset and do even some of that identity work to be prepared for when you get called out mm-hmm. to be able to h- handle that, right? 
So mm-hmm. that's I, I, that really spoke to me. And the storytelling piece too. I, I've again through whether it's implicit or explicit or just my own stuff. Like I've always thought my story doesn't matter. Like I, it's just I got to do the work. I got to be anti-racist, be anti-sexist, do the equity work, and just charge on with that. But my own story doesn't matter, right? Like it's other people's stories that matter, and and working for justice for them matter, and. And I think I've been, I'm coming around to the, the idea that my story matters too. And, and that doesn't mean that I'm centering myself. Right. So, you know, Ken and I talk about some of these mixed messages that I think a lot of white folks get and some of that white fragility, you know, kind of, you know, to be honest, jumps in and we're like, all right, fine. My story doesn't matter. Then I'm not, I'm not telling it. Right. I'm just gonna fine. Right. So we got to work through that. But I guess the question in here is what, yeah. So how do you, how do you explain the nuance with, self work versus centering work in your mind and in the research that you found, if that makes sense as yeah, a question. No, it's, it's a, it's a really, it's a really good question. And I think it's a really powerful question and I don't, and then truly, I, I don't know what the answer is. I mean, I think that there's a, we're all different. We probably all have to come up with our own answer of what that means for us. I think that, for myself, and this is not not from the research, so this is Becky Ivan. I think it has taken me a really long time to understand that my capacity to take care of others is equal to the capacity that I use to take care of myself. That is a very hard concept for me. And I see it on my parenting. I mean, I am okay being a martyr. Like, I'll put everything aside and give my kids everything they want because that's what a good mom does or whatever message I'm telling myself that day. And so it is it, it, it is a very intentional work to be like, no, if you don't love yourself, if I don't love myself, then I truly can't be in relationship and love other people. And so for me, who's in this work because I love people, because I love humanity, because I... I think this hard stuff is worth it. I had to really reflect on that. Like, oh, do I need to focus on myself? And so there is so much tension in that. You know, and I think even in this research, we talked a lot about that tension of if we're researching individuals who identify as white, is that helping or hurting? Because isn't most research about dominant culture in Mm -hmm. one way or another? And, And I say that not flippantly, but like, it is usually a majority of research, and I'm in business, especially in business, is around educated, heterosexual, white, working men. Um, and I think we're seeing that shift slowly. And so we talked about, like, is this contributing to that body of literature? Or how do we put forward a critical analysis of ourselves? So I think even in this research, we we talked about that tension a lot. And how do we... How do we do that as individual researchers? How do we do that as a group? How are we accountable to BIPOC communities in our research? What does that look like? And I think in a lot of ways, that's why this research took a long time, uh, because there were no quick answers for that. So this was an 18-month project with 12 of those months being us figuring out the logistics, uh, truly like, okay, what are the boundaries? What, for us, do we feel like is contributing in a in a way that's lifting and amplifying BIPOC individuals in the workplace. Um, so yeah, I hear you. I, I, it is. And I think every person we talked to in some way expressed 
attention in one way or another of something that they're that they have dealt with and that they're currently dealing with um that it didn't go away that it existed it was part of the work i love that saying you got in order to love others you have to love yourself first and i i, I wanted to say that again because i think these in my from my opinion white men tend to kind of just intellectualize things right and it's it's all about the head stuff and you know if we've been part of the dominant culture and forming that culture. It's just about the head stuff. We've, I think we just naturally tend to forget about how important it is to think about the heart stuff too. Um, and, and how important that is. Cause I think, yeah, we just, we intellectualize things, then we just want to run in and fix it. Right. But we skip over the important, the, the self work, the, the, do we love ourselves, our identity development? And that's, that's what I've loved about what's basically why, what Ken has brought to the table with this, this whole concept in the first place. It's just something I've never, never considered. So I appreciate that. So, and I think, yeah, and I think academics, right? Like I'm in an environment where we, we can solve any problem if we can just get a data set and, (laughs) and that's not what this work is. And I think that that makes Mm -hmm. this really hard uh, because there isn't one answer. There's probably a thousand answers and everything depends on something else. And so it, it, I get it though. Like if we could just get the right data set, I could totally tell you the four steps. And I think a lot, you know, like that sounds so dreamy. <laughs> like yeah. whoever does that, like I'm on board. Yeah. Uh, but And there are really smart people who've been trying to do it for decades. And definitely I'm standing on their shoulders trying to throw some research in there to try to help for the person who's going to come together and help us sort this all out. Well, one of the one of the topics that you talked to participants about was how they believe that their white privilege supports their BIPOC colleagues in the workplace. So, and you came up with two two roles. It sounds like they were commonly referenced, and I I think to to your point though, I mean, we do just as human beings, we need some clarity, right? We need a purpose, we need a role, we need sort of in a way a lane to fit in to to feel like okay, now I got some momentum, some direction of where to go. So I think these roles really help people think about which one of these roles do I fit in. So could you talk more about this, the roles of messenger and reinforcer and just just describe that a little bit more detail? Yeah, happy to. And I think that we've seen this in previous literature in lots of different ways. Um, Hearing things like how do I amplify somebody's voice? What does that look like in a workplace setting to do that? So very similar themes. And all all of the people that we talked to said it was their core belief that what they were doing was the best thing for the company and the communities that they lived in. So everybody really operated from, I don't want to say the word calling. Uh, Calling is one word that, that, that a few people chose. But I think a lot of folks really saw this as I do this work because it ma- it's bigger than me. It's it, it matters longer than I'm going to be here. It's something much deeper than this short-term project. And so they see the benefit not only to themselves, to their teams, to their company, the community. Everybody really articulated where they saw benefit. And it was really literal, like to this person, to these people, to this company. And and so I think with that, we asked folks, okay, so you you identify as white, how does that help you do the work that you're doing? Or how does it 
hinder the work that you're doing. And I think um, the help really came in this like messenger and reinforcer. Uh, Folks talked about what does this look like when I'm in a room of all dominant culture, all folks who identify as white? And what does that look like when I speak up and begin to represent the voice or at least interrupt the conversation? And so for, for those folks, they were messengers. And many of them talked about how their access to individuals and power one-on-one in small groups really allowed them to have very deep conversations with these leaders around like their behavior or something they said or something they did. And, and one person gave a, an example of um, their CEO said something and they set up time to meet with the CEO and it completely changed how he showed up in his work. He had no idea. So, so there is a piece of that restorative element that, that happens. Now, what I also want to say is, I don't want to say that that couldn't have happened with somebody who identified as BIPOC. I think in this scenario, that access to power, that access to resources at times can make this go quicker. As a reinforcer, folks talked about how if somebody speaks up in a meeting or says something in a meeting, how are they reinforcing what that person is saying? So if it seems like maybe this person wasn't listened to or leaders maybe begin, there's just behaviors begin to look down or not look like they're invested. How can I use my voice to say, hey, you know, Paul, actually what you did say, that was a great idea. Tell us a little bit more about that. And and it, it helps lend support without putting the attention on me. Uh, so folks talked a lot about that, this navigating these relationships in public and private and leveraging whatever thread they could pull to amplify um, their colleagues' voices. That's so helpful. I think that's a big thing that we've really encountered Paul and I with the white men who are really interested in, in being equitable leaders and, and on this journey with us is exactly that, you know, what, what do we actually do in the day to day? I think having those two pillars, just messenger and reinforcer, right? I think that's really helpful. And the other thing that I was thinking of when you were talking about being a reinforcer is I like how, you know, you said the name, you're like, Hey, what you said, Paul, was really good. I think when I could see it, if someone's trying to be a reinforcer, they maybe repeat what someone said and then they get the credit, right? Which is mm-hmm. a lot that happens historically with people in the dominant cast taking credit for other people's work. And so I, I think with being a reinforcer, I like how you said it. No, actually, you know, Paul, can you ex- expand more on that? Can you say more on that? What you said is really interesting. If it was skipped over, that's that's a really helpful framework. I like that a lot. Yeah, and I like how there's there's two roles. Right? If it, Ken and I have talked about you know white supremacy characteristics and one of them being one the one right way. And you, if there's only you know one option, people who don't feel comfortable speaking up or they have you know other other variables that make it even risky to speak up. You know, in the middle of a meeting, you know, they might feel some shame or like, oh, I'm not a good ally because I didn't speak up, right? But you have other roles that are that are also really important. Um, and other ways to to leverage your privilege and your power, it allows people to be like, okay, well, maybe I'm not the person who speaks up in a meeting, but I am the person who will, you know, set up that one-on-one with a leader. 
because um, I've already established that relationship. You know, I f- or I feel more comfortable in a one-on-one setting versus in a group setting, right? So mm-hmm. it, it provides options for people to be like, there's so many different ways to leverage your power and privilege. And there doesn't, we don't need to fight over like what's the one way to do it or the best way to do it or the right way to do it, you know? So I like how it allows people to think, okay, which, and maybe it's both sometimes, you know, but at least people can be like, all right, you know, this is a role that I feel a little bit, I fit more and I can be more confident in. For sure. And I think that, I think it's all of it. I think, I I think that I can reflect back even on kind of my own roles when, you know, in the workplace of when I was a messenger reinforcer, when I was neutral, like I can think back on those, those situations. And I think they all have value. And, you know, the big question that drove us to this work, you know, that, that we really grounded it in was the research of, okay, am I a bridge builder or what, choose your term as somebody who identifies as white, or am I creating more harm by not getting out of the way? And, and in some, there was a a piece of research um, and I'll send you the, the name of it and the research just so we can give them, amplify them in which uh, their research was the reason why, so in this particular group of activists, of BIPOC activists, the reason they burned out is because they were busy educating white people. Yeah. And, and I think somebody like me, and I, you know, we didn't talk about this with the folks that I interviewed, I think that weighs on us. Because it's like, oh my goodness, am I being that white person right now that's being educated? Am I burning out my colleagues? Hmm. Because I'm not trying to do that. Yet I need the information. And so it's like, how do I live in that space of, of acknowledging where I'm at, try, you know, trying to take care of people around me, knowing that, oh, I'm just, I know I'm going to make mistakes and I know I'm not going to do this right. And I probably am going to fall back into privilege and I'm going to fall back into my safe spots at times. And then what do I do? Then how do I manage that? And I think you have to go through that cycle to to really learn about who you are and how you're going to show up in this work. Yeah. Another thing I, that kind of came up for me is you're talking about these two roles. And Ken and I have talked about this, I feel like recently, is this idea of our role as white folks to carry some of that emotional, psychological labor in doing this work. And again, balancing that, like, when do we step forward and when do we step back? But But as you just referenced, you know, it's it's exhausting, right? And folks of color are doing this. There's the exhaustion of experiencing it directly, right? Experiencing racism directly. And then there's the exhaustion of having to educate white folks, especially when some of the white folks don't want to be educated and and push back. So, so where can us, where can we step in and say, we will take on this emotional labor you know, the one thing I think about, though, back to some, one of those themes of resiliency is because we've been accustomed to privilege, like we, I feel like we haven't built up much resilience, right? We're, we're more fragile, right? So it's sort of a, it's sort of a, yes, we'll take on the labor, but will we crumble so much quicker, right? Um, because we maybe haven't built up that resiliency. So um, just curious your thoughts on that. And also, you know, I'd love to hear like, what are some other than doing the work and learning and making mistakes, and the resilience that just naturally comes from that? Are there other things that we can do to build resilience, resiliency? Yeah, it's a good question. And there's this really awesome body of research on resiliency and that it is, you know, in short, it is something that can be built. Resiliency is something that we can learn and that there are tactics that we can use to build resiliency. 
And so for, for some of us, that, that it, being in the space, showing up, doing the work is important. But resiliency can be built. How often are you getting out of your comfort zone in any way? Uh, whatever that looks like for you. I mean, that's all different. Some, we all have different comfort zones. Um, but I know when I'm working with students, I'll say like, uh, look at your friend circle. Are, are they pretty similar to you? Are they different? Um, when was the last time you were in a space, however you identify, in which you were the minority in whatever way that is? And how did you feel? And how did you process through that? And just finding ourselves trying something new. When's the last time you like developed a new hobby or did something really different that you struggled, like kind of struggled through? These things can all build resiliency. And, and I think that the body of literature is really growing in that space. And we're learning lots of ways we can do that. And I think that's transferable to this work. You know, if I build up resiliency in this space, I can... It, it's something that I think carries with me because as part of that, it's about knowing who I am and how I respond. And that if I do make a mistake, that I actually am able to come back and be stronger in some way or have learned something. And it's that, you know, that 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 self-worth, that grounding. And it's hard. Like, I, I'm not saying that easy. Like, I feel like that was like three sentences. And I'm like, this is like life's work here. So yeah, yeah it's a good question. Well, it also reinforces that storytelling and understanding our history. Because what I thought about as you're talking is like, I can draw upon past experiences that have been really hard for me and be like, oh, wait, I can do this. I have gotten through difficult situations. I have resiliency sort of already inside me. Yes, I can build more, but also it's there. Right. I, and I can draw upon it from past experiences and it doesn't need to be about anti-racism work. It can be about whatever was difficult. So that's I think that's really helpful to know. Yeah, I agree. I was just going to say, Becky, I was going to quote from your research something that really stuck out to me. And our listeners are used to me doing some longer quotes. So hopefully you can bear with me like our listeners are used to doing. So here's the no quote. Problem. It's the, the quote theorists argue it is important to identify whiteness in the research, especially in discussing race, for two main reasons. The first reason is a perceived lack of awareness of white identity by the dominant culture, even though marginalized communities are acutely aware of its existence. The second reason is to deconstruct the social construct of race, dismantle white supremacy, and encourage slash demand that white people take accountability for white complicity. Research has indicated that action towards accountability is critical for white people to begin to address systemic racism, end quote. And, you know, seeing one's whiteness is hard, right? And even in that quote, as it says, even though marginalized communities are acutely aware of its existence, right? For us white people, it really, it can be hard. It, it takes that effort, extra effort. It has to be intentional. And to be accountable, one must first be aware. And your research concludes that it may be useful to, to tie DEI work to existing theoretical models for this reason. So you state three theories that appear to have an initial fit with this work, and they are social identity theory, sociocultural learning theory, and tempered radical theory. 
So if there's one thing that Paul and I really love around here, it's a good theory, right? And so I was wondering if, you know, that that's it's kind of a, a loaded buildup to that. It kind of sounds like a complicated question, but can you give an overview of those three theories and why they can be helpful for whites working to identify their whiteness to ultimately work towards that accountability? Yeah, it's a it's a great question and the core question, I think, in a lot of ways of, of this research. And, you know, and we when we talked to individuals, we saw them trying to figure this out themselves, too, because many of them were very interested in. So I went through this and I have emerged like I can't unsee racism now. So how do I create that in my work environment? And I'm actually in a role that is created to do that to an extent. Folks use different language and we can definitely talk about that. That was a whole, that's a whole other box is language. And I think of your podcasts, 18 and 19, when you talk about white supremacy culture and dominant culture, language you're using and how that matters. And that gets into this theory piece too. So in short, and I'm going to summarize like dozens and dozens and dozens of research papers of really smart people that are in psychology, mostly. Yeah. Um, did you summarize three theories in like two sentences? I know. <laughs> and, and I'm sure that like there are people right now who are like, I cannot wait to write her a note to tell her that she's wrong. And please do. Please do. <laughs> no. I, I like fully acknowledge that that I am in a business school and trying to link these theories into what we're doing in business. Yeah. Uh, because for so long, I feel like in a lot of ways, we've been isolated. And so it's like, no, these theories are really applicable. So the social identity theory, I, I feel like I, I've heard of you talk about this a lot on your podcast. Like, how do you come to know who you are? How do you, are you part of an in-group or an out-group? What does that mean? Um, how did you come to know uh, about your space and culture? And in this case, it was really looking at as somebody who identifies as white in a paid role, uh, there is a certain level of power, but folks are coming in with an identity in that role. Mm. And so they'll come in and then they change their roles based on their interactions with colleagues and of the folks we interviewed, they they highlighted very specifically with BIPOC colleagues. And so it was really looking at this theory of sociocultural learning theory, this idea that I can read a book, but it isn't until I interact with somebody else that that learning really comes to life for me because I'm seeing what that means to somebody and it attaches meaning to it for me. And so we were really looking at, okay, so what is the sociocultural learning theory? How can somebody in a DEI role build that? And we've seen, we've heard of it in, in ways thinking through things like reverse mentoring, organizations that have like online chat where I can go and like type messages or like I can, a discussion board, I can go and learn from my colleagues. So I think we're starting to see this learning, but in when we're talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, this is like a really critical element of it. And so an individual comes in, I have this identity, I interact with other people, and then my identity begins to change. And what we found with folks as they've gone through this work, especially with those in for-profit, I, I want to say there was a distinction mm. uh, slightly with those in nonprofit and those in government, um, and, and but those in for-profit found a real conflict with their own personal values and the values of their organization. 
And so we were fascinated to understand how somebody reconciles that tension. So in business and in, in lots of spaces, and I'm going to make a really broad statement, but and like, it's going to like, it's complicated, yeah. but it's like capitalism is the root of the problem. So if we can mm. fix capitalism, <laughs> then we're going to like solve all these problems. And, and the reality is, I actually think that's true. I can't tell you how or what, but I'm like, that resonates with me. Yeah. Now, what if I'm working in an organization that's built on capitalism? I'm on a diversity, equity, and inclusion team. How do I align my personal values with the organizational values? And there was something in the literature we came across called tempered radicals. It's uh, it's not mentioned a lot, but it was something we wanted to, to learn about is it's almost like I'm a translator. Like I'm hearing about the, like I'm hearing about Black Lives Matter. I know that that is not going to resonate in my workplace. So how can I translate that to have the work align with my values? And then it goes back out to community. So it's kind of like this, this flow where as a tempered radical, I see both pros and cons of what's happening in my work and outside of my work. And I attempt to navigate those two together. Mm. And so we're really curious, just like, how does somebody continue to do that? Or do you eventually leave one movement or the other? Do you eventually leave your job? Do you eventually stop doing DEI work? How do you reconcile this, these difference in, in, in values uh, between an organization yourself and then yourself and what's happening outside of the organization. And so those were the three theories that we really talked about. So it was like, how do I know who I am? We are social. How do I learn from others? And then how do I do this work in an oppressed system right. with oppression built into the system? And I'm talking about all these things, but if capitalism still exists, am I really undoing that? And for a lot of people, that's when the headaches start. Yeah. So it's like, oh, this just got really big. <laughs> now we're talking about shutting down our company and I'm really uncomfortable. So yep. yeah, it, it gets complicated. And so tempered radicals, try to find ways to uh, reconcile that. So is that a progression then, those theories? Does it have to be in that progression? It doesn't. Okay. It doesn't have to be in those. Pro- I mean, because well, an example of this is, am I a member of the of an in-group or an out-group when it comes to white people? So it seems like a very simple question. Like, I'm white. I'm not like dancing around that. I, I am a person who identifies as white. I was raised white. I, I definitely embody uh, white supremacy characteristics. Uh, so I'm not like trying to say that. But I think there was, there is a moment for some people that it's like all of a sudden I'm in the in group, but the more I do this work, I become a member of the out group amongst my community. But I'm not in a different community. I'm just not all the way in this community. And so I think we see people, so again, that goes back to that social identity theory, that weighing in and out, am I in this group or out of this group? And I think in a lot of ways, that's like people were really excited of who else was in the study because there was like, oh, this is my in-group. Like, I know that we'll have common beliefs, like we're all coming from this common motivation. So no, I don't think it has to be in that order. I don't think everybody's a tempered radical in Fortune 500 companies. I don't even know if that word makes sense. I mean, we're really wrestling with with this. And a lot of this is built on, there's a book uh, by Newkirk called Diversity Inc., 
And it's, you know, it's a book around the failed promises of diversity and that, that there's been billions and billions of dollars spent on diversity and inclusion initiatives with like really, truly not much to show for it. Um, and we're talking about Fortune 500 because we can get access to their leadership teams and their data. So so I want to like also put boundaries around that, but we're not seeing movement in CEO. We're not seeing a ton of movement on boards, all of these things. So it's like, what is not working? And I think that's what we were spending really trying to get to of what is what is breaking what what where where is where can we fix this or where is you know and so these theories i think loop all around each other so fascinating i i feel like the tempered radicals it's just it's resonating with me hearing how you explain that i feel like that's that's so important to make change to be able to see the pros and cons of an organization and translate that that is a very tricky tricky thing to be able to Mm verbalize that, see that, see how can we really hang on to those pros? Because just saying like this organization is a terrible organization top to bottom, right? Like that at the end of the day, probably isn't going to make a ton of progress either. And so that it seems like a role that is, it seems really important to, to really make, make change. So that that's fascinating. I feel like, I, I feel like we could talk to you, Becky, for we would have like Paul and I are already struggling with mini sods and we could have this be like <laughs> three hours long. I just know it talking yeah. to you. It's yeah. so, so fascinating. But in the in the respecting of your time, maybe Paul can do our last question that we we always want to end all of our interviews with. <laughs> Sounds yeah. Good. And right before that, I kind of wanted to end on a good note, part of something from your research that really stuck out to me. Just when you're talking about shared frameworks, you reference the intercultural development inventory, the IDI, and then Okun's ladder of empowerment, which we've talked quite a bit on the episode. And I just love how you said, you know, these are tools mentioned a lot by participants and it helped them recognize that their whiteness is not confined to negativity. I just love that. Because mm-hmm. it, it it's such a it, it was a word that resonated with me because it I literally did feel confined to that fact, right? But but these tools and these frameworks and then all these roles you've talked about and all these different things that people can do, people have the opportunity to make meaningful change at an individual level and in a systemic level, of course. Um, but there's there's meaningful things that we can do that can turn our lens to that white identity to be positive. But of course, as the ladder of empowerment talks about, that positive identity being inextricably linked with being anti-racist. So just really love that. Um, but of course, the focus of our podcast is, is on for white white men. So we we really would love to for you to, to close us out with just telling us, you know, what's, what's something that comes to mind when you uh, that you'd like to see specifically white men do to be anti-racist, anti-sexist, and understand our role in creating equity? Yeah, good question. Um, I feel like uh, whenever I get asked that question about anybody, my my knee jerk reaction is go to therapy, and I and I mean that like learn to deal with hard things and feelings, and what is it like to be out of control, and what does that feel like? Mm-hmm. And I always am. I'm such an advocate of like better mental health because I think that sometimes we don't think about that until there's a crisis, but just doing those checks with somebody who isn't going to judge you. They're, they're there to help you be the best version of yourself. And then the other thing, um, as I was preparing for this, I came across the Brene Brown quote, 
If you are not in the arena getting your ass kicked on occasion, I am not interested in or open to your feedback. And she goes on to say, if you're criticizing from a place where you're not also putting yourself on the line, I'm not interested in your feedback. And I think for a lot of us, as hard as it is, whatever that action means for us, I think showing up actually holds a lot of weight and a there's a lot more grace than people think there is in those experiences. And so I was thinking about that and that and the idea that who am I listening to and am I showing up in the arena with them? You know, and so if I think about the person that I want to be, and if, you know, you were saying I want to be anti-racist, anti-sexist, what does this look like? What arenas are you showing up in? And like being in community with and taking the lumps and then also who are you listening to and amplifying in that arena with you? Um, so that was really what I was just kind of like kicking around as I was preparing for that question. What arena are you in? I love it. Mm. That is so good. Perfect way to end. Becky, Yvonne, what a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much. I must say you have set the bar extremely high as we <laughs> kick off our uh, guests here. And you've definitely shown our listeners and Paul and me just the real value of of uh, bringing folks in. And we just truly appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much. On behalf of the research team, we're, we're thrilled to talk about it. Thank you. And once the uh, report is published, uh, let us know and we'll share with y'all listeners on our website and we'll let you know on a episode as well when you can get your hands on it because it's really good stuff. So Awesome. All right. Thank you, Thank you again. What an unbelievably great conversation with Becky Yvonne. Couldn't be more thankful to Becky for that. I mean, so... Like we said, we could have gone for hours and hours and hours. And sometimes that that's hyperbole. I literally could have talked about that yeah. for hours. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was just really insightful. And she's so such a fantastic person. So I really enjoyed that conversation. You know, I know that there was so much we talked about. What's something that just has your wheels turning after that conversation? Yeah, really, what really resonated with me was those two roles of messenger and reinforcer. Because again, it brings clarity to like, okay, I can do something. And there, there's really specific things I can even think about right now and opportunities that honestly I've missed even in the last week in meetings or even just things I didn't do, right? Like sometimes, you know, it's like not racist, right? Like yeah. there are probably some opportunities where I could have set up, like been a messenger and set up meetings with certain individuals and I didn't do it or haven't done it, right? So my wheels are turning as far as, okay, who do I need to connect with? Who do I need to meet? Which relationship do I need to build? How can I be that messenger? And then the reinforcer, I think, is something I personally need to work on. I think I resonate more with the messenger and reinforcer is a little bit more. I need to build that awareness and practice of just, you know, when I'm in a meeting, of course, I'm thinking about the content in the meeting, but I also need to devote some brain power into the dynamics and how I can reinforce or even be a messenger to speak up for something that I'm seeing or something that's happening that needs to be said. So I really think as white men, we, I don't want to say the word should, I don't like the word should, mm -hmm. but there's opportunities to do both, to be a messenger and a reinforcer. But I think either way, we're going to probably align better with one. So yeah. I think if anything, not to put all your eggs in one basket, but think about the one that you really align with and think, and you could, you could be, who knows, be pigeonholed by the role that you're in in your job. And you can maybe only be the reinforcer, only be the messenger. But I think, I think if, we, if we really expand the definitions, there's ways we can be both yeah. in our day-to-day in our -day life. So 
So that's something I'm going to think about. I encourage our listeners to think about how can every day I be that messenger, be that reinforcer in what might be seemingly small ways. Mm -hmm. And there's might be some really big opportunities too. Yeah. And you know, such complex and messy work as we've talked about so much, I mean, incredibly complex. And I just know from our experiences, you know, one of the reasons we're doing this, this work at the modern white man specifically is we hear a lot of people just like, I practically don't know what to do in everyday settings and to boil it down to two words that encompasses so much is yeah i i agree that's a big takeaway it's really helpful you, you know the the thing that i just cannot get out of my mind is the tempered radical theory i just am i'm really into the idea of these three theories again kind of similarly so so complex on this process kind of boiled down to three theories which is not small but then even becky being able to explain that so succinctly and really that making sense the social identity theory sociocultural learning and tempered radical and just the idea of you know tempered radical is something that she said that really sticks out to me is you know how they can see the pros and cons about an organization for example and translate that and and kind of like go in between the two and and you know, be that radical that wants to change things and make it better, but not in a way that comes in and is like, this is all terrible. Uh, we all are should feel ashamed to work here. You know, it's yep. like a really positive way. So it's like, yeah, it's, it's a positive, but it's also like you're radical. And I love that, right? It's like, because we want to change stuff at the end of the day. And yeah. like you've said a lot on the podcast, Paul, we're going to ruffle feathers, right, along the way, but you can do it in a tempered fashion. Yeah. And I think that tempered is sort of a euphemism for like managing fragility, mm. like navigating fragility, right? And what we've talked about before is like our role as white folks to to do that work because it's it's so emotionally and psychologically exhausting, right? Yeah. For everyone, but obviously, especially for people of color. So that how do I manage the fragility that we get from white folks when we do ruffle feathers, right? right. So, and I think when you bring in the cons, that con side, it's doing that in a way, right? The tempered radical in a way that you manage the fragility so it doesn't get out of, out of hand, but you also hold the line, right? And say yeah. like, things gotta change, right? And that's a, such point. a difficult balance. And to be honest, like we gotta manage our own fragility in that. And I think that's where there's maybe some of that downside with white folks doing this because our own fragility is at play. And so it's, it's easier for us to like bow out and say like, this is too hard or we don't push as hard as we probably should. So, you know, there's a, there's a whole nother dynamic there too, but I, I think that is really important and something for me personally, I kind of have the tendency to just go in guns a blazing, right? And yeah. then I just burn bridges and nothing happens as a result, right? right. So I, I really like that too, is, is how, to, how, to, how, to, how do you be kind of that ambassador and di take that diplomatic approach? Yeah, well said. So yeah. many good nuggets to take out of that. Lots of nuggets. Many thanks again to Becky. Thank you to all of you. We have more guests on the horizon. This is something, again, Paul and I are very excited to do and continue to bring in some really, really great voices into this process so we can learn from them and continue to try to grow. Yeah, it's just going to be a mix of, of us and guests. We're going to keep you on your toes. You'll never know what is you're going to get. Is it a mini-sode? Is it a full episode? <laughs> is it a guest? Is, is, is it, it a maxi-sode? No, 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 it's definitely not a maxi-sode. Okay, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> never know what you're gonna get at the modern white man folks <laughs> yeah. all right thanks everybody check out that website 
www.themodernwhiteman.com. Subscribe to the newsletter. Really great way to stay in the loop with all this fun stuff that we have coming out. And until next time, let's keep learning, stay humble, and do the work.